This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan. Today is Sunday, October the 23rd, 2022. Really thank you for being with me today. I've missed the past two Sundays as my family and I were able to get out of town on our annual fall trip. This time we went to the Oregon coast. I have got to tell you, if you have not been to the Oregon coast, uh, just amazing, just beautiful. The people were wonderful and friendly. Just the scenery of God's creation is stunning, stunning. But it's great to be back as we jump into part two of our study of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae the book of Colossians. So you ready? You have your Bible? Go print the notes out that I have online if you haven't done that, and we will begin. When Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians, these young believers were being challenged by what theologians today call the Colossian heresy, the essence of it being that Christ was just not enough. No, Jesus is great, mind you, but if you really want to be right with God, if you really want to experience all the good that this life has to offer, well then, Christ alone isn't just going to cut it. Now, in response to this, Paul writes his letter, and he begins by thanking God for these believers at the church in Colossae, for their faith, their love, how they truly understood God's grace, and how the true message of the gospel was bearing fruit through them. And then Paul prays. And this isn't just a perfunctory introductory prayer. Paul tells them that this is his ongoing prayer. And we looked at this over the last three Sundays. And to set the stage for this incredible scripture that we're going to see today, I want us to see this prayer again. And it's in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, where we read, For this reason, Paul says, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of of light. Wow. And then Paul brings his prayer to its apex with this incredible essential statement of what God has done and by declaring the source, the fullness, and the summation of all he has done. And we read, for he, God, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us, um, the trans. The other translations say that he has transferred us, he has translated us, he has conveyed us, brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And friends, now Paul is going to say, in one of his most important statements of everything that he ever wrote, let me tell you, let me tell you who this Son is is. Friends, in what follows at verses 15 through 20, the Apostle Paul pens what may be the New Testament's greatest proclamation of the identity, the supremacy, and the person 
of Jesus Christ. The theological term for what we believe about Jesus is Christology. And in this passage, we find Christology's highest expression. Now, some scholars think that this may have been a confessional hymn sung by the first generation of Christ followers, continually reminding themselves of the absolute supremacy and majesty of the object of their new faith, but even more, the source of the new life into which they had been born. And now, not that different from us, what these believers proclaimed to be true and how they lived as a result my friends, was profoundly countercultural. They were surrounded by societal forces that were seeking to undermine their faith. They faced the constant temptation to grow weary and lose heart. And in response to this, Paul cries out to them, look to Jesus, for he is your hope. He is enough and he is all. My friends, Jesus is our life. Jesus is our great confession. And Paul says, let me tell you, let me just try to tell you the fullness of who Jesus is. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Because my friends, 2,000 years after Paul wrote this letter, this remains as Christians, as people of faith in Christ, this remains our great confession. And the scripture says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Okay. My friends, let me, let me start with a question here. Just what is Christianity? Is Christianity a religion? A set of beliefs about God, history, life, and the future? Is it a form of spirituality that just helps people cope with the struggles in life? Is it an ethical system, right? A set of moral standards, moral truth. Perhaps it's a cultural system that's defined by our music, our books, how we dress, our buildings, the way we talk, you know, what we do on our holidays. Or is it a political identity, a religious base for political power? You know, there are many ways that people today would describe what Christianity is, inside the church and outside the church. And it just may include some of what I said there. There are people right now, in fact, that are asserting that we are seeing a great struggle for the identity of Christianity in our country. And I agree with that. But my friends, whatever we may at first blush, blush say Christianity is, regardless of what our culture around us may say Christianity is, Scripture proclaims that the defining reality of what Christianity is, is who 
Jesus is. And that is why this passage, and others like it throughout the New Testament, is why it is so important. You know, there's much in the New Testament teaching that describes the nature of Jesus, the character of Jesus. Here, Paul establishes in no uncertain terms the supremacy of Jesus. And he does this by painting a sweeping portrait with three essential themes. In this portrait of Christ, we see the essential truth. First of all, Jesus' supremacy over the first creation. Okay, Everything that has been created since the beginning of time. We also see, second, Jesus' supremacy over his new creation, the new creation of the new covenant that began with Christ's death and resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And thirdly, we see the theme of Jesus' supremacy in reconciling his creation to God. So let's explore this. And what we see first and foremost, Scripture proclaiming, starting here in Colossians 1 verse 15, that Jesus is the full, total, flawless revelation of God. Jesus is God. In verse 15, Paul says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Okay, now friends, the word image here means much more than just resemblance or resembling. You know, there's this old saying, you've probably heard of how a child is the spitting image of their parent. I'm not sure where the whole spitting thing comes from. But basically, I mean, the kid looks like the parent. They're not the same, but what they really look like them. And that's not what this is. Rather, Paul is directing us to the reality that in Jesus, there exists the fullness of the presence of God. You know, in the opening of his gospel, John said, No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And Paul isn't just referring here to Jesus as the physical Jewish man who lived in Judea some 2,000 years ago. Now, we're going to get to that. But here, Paul is speaking of Jesus as the total reality of who God is and God's presence and God's work from eternity past to eternity future. Before time began, before creation was created, Jesus existed as the fullness of God. Likewise, the phrase that Christ was the firstborn over all creation doesn't imply that Jesus is a created being. The rest of the passage is going to make this clear. Rather, the concept of firstborn, both in the Old Testament and in ancient Hebrew culture, signified that the firstborn son held the place of preeminence in the family. So that's what Paul is getting after here, preeminence. You see, he's drawing upon Old Testament imagery to describe Jesus as existing fully as God before all creation and being supreme over all creation and that all creation ultimately, currently and ultimately, is for him. You know, the writer of Hebrews opens with this same truth. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, we read, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And now Paul takes the next step, proclaiming that as God, Jesus is both the agent and the source of all creation. Verse 16, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Okay, two big thoughts here. First, Paul says that in Christ, all things were created. Now, the word in is very important, right? Creation wasn't just by Christ, it was in Christ. And friends, this is a concept that is hard to wrap our brains around. But let me just give a little illustration, an image here that might start to get there. I want you to imagine a person who wants to build a home. They're building their home and they're telling you about it. And they start by saying that they are the architect. From top to bottom, every detail, every square inch is a product of their creative genius and imagination. Then they say that they are also the builder. Every detail of the design will be carried out, cut, installed, perfectly placed by them. In response to that, you say, that's impressive. But they say, well, hold on, because I'm not done. All the materials for my house, the grounds, every finished material, every raw material, the earth under the house, the sky above the house, the energy used to build and sustain the house, the glue that holds the house together, every conceivable and inconceivable thing that went into the house, I made all of that as well. In fact, I didn't just make all of it, I am all of it. Oh, my friends, that just starts to point toward the cosmic reality of who Jesus is. And the second big thought here, Paul now gets specific because he wants to make sure we understand the scope that he is describing. He says that Christ is the creating agent and source of things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and are for him. Paul is describing not just the reality of physical creation, but also of the, the creation of spiritual reality. Every spiritual force, both good and evil, was created by Christ. So what does he mean? What does Paul mean when he talks about the thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities? Right, just to really sim simplify this down, this describes the reality of spiritual forces, angels, demons, and systems of power, both good and evil. The theologian N.T. Wright describes this as the power structures of the universe. And this includes the power structures by which the world operates, be it political, economic, or social. Wright says, wherever you look, whatever realities you can think of, even if they do not acknowledge the fact, owe their very existence to Christ. But even more, Paul says these entities, these forces, these systems are created for him. I mean, friends, just think of this. Imagine something for a moment that is absolutely counter to who Jesus is, who God is, his nature. You know, what, what I thought of after thinking of that for a while, 
I'm thinking of the denigration and the exploitation of creation, chiefly people. With that in mind, my friends, every person who has ever brought harm, suffering, and denigration to another human being, that person is, they, they are themselves a creation of Christ. We'd say, well, I know that. But taking a step further, the systems of power they use to carry out their exploitation is a creation of Christ, even though it has been distorted. Their ability to continue to live, even in rebellion against God, is possible because of Christ. Their greatest plans against God and creation will ultimately be used by Christ for his purposes and glory. And this is key. The very systems and powers used against Christ and his creation will themselves be reconciled back to God by Christ. Now, friends, the bottom line is, when Paul says, and you've heard this phrase multiple times now, when Paul says, all things, that all things have been created through him and for him, my friends, all things means all things. Now, let's continue now. We see that Jesus isn't just the source of creation, but he is also the sustainer of all creation. Verse 17, Paul says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, the tense of the Greek here indicates that the phrase all things, meaning the totality of creation, was sustained by Christ and continues to be sustained by Christ. All of creation, even those who deny him and even the enemies of God, are themselves dependent upon Christ. Paul states this, states this succinctly when he spoke to the intellectual of Athens, all the way back in Acts chapter 17, when he said, if you remember this, this is um, the first half of Acts 17, 28, when Paul says, says, listen, for in him, in Christ, we live and we move and we have our being. To quote N.T. Wright again, creation is God's work. It is Christ's work. Though spoiled by sin, it still belongs to God, and God has plans for it. And my friends, this is an important corrective to the religious fatalism that is very present in large parts of the church today that holds that humanity has no hope. It's what I, we're done, bridge too far. And the sooner Christ just comes and puts an end to this, the better. You know, in light of this scripture, this is tantamount to saying to Jesus, Jesus, this creation that you are sustaining, it's not worth sustaining. And if we think that, right, we're not gonna, we're not gonna consciously say it that way, but even unconsciously, if this is where we're tempted to go, that Jesus of scripture replies to us, oh, my friend, my child, I beg to differ. And I demonstrated this on the cross. In fact, the new creation you are longing for, it has already begun. For I am already in the process of reconciling my creation back to myself. And my agent of carrying out this new creation work, my body, my presence, my ambassador in the world now, it is you. It is the church. And friends, this leads to the second big theme of our great confession, which is that Jesus is the head of his new creation body, which is the church. Verse 18, Paul says, And he is the head of the body, 
the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Friends, Paul's point here is clear and it is essential. Everything that has just been said about Jesus. He says, just just try to wrap your brains about this. The totality, the immensity, the eternity of everything of who Jesus is. This is the Jesus that we belong to and none other. This is the Jesus in whom we live, move, and have our being. This is the Christ who began and who sustains and who, and who will bring his church to its completion. You know, the word beginning is really insufficient here. It's because it means more than just, you know, Jesus being at the first point in time. The word here speaks of Jesus being the first principle of the church, the source of the church, the creative initiative of the church. And that Christ is the firstborn from among the dead, likewise, means that Jesus' resurrection, while being the first, it is not the last. Christ's resurrection was the first of many. And although our physical, as believers, our physical resurrection is yet to come, our true resurrection, our spiritual resurrection in Christ has already happened. We are new creations now. Just as God's work of reconciling all of his creation has already begun. And Paul will spend the rest of his letter, by the way, unpacking what that means, what it looks like, and how we live as new creation people. But now, as Paul moves to the conclusion of the great confession, this great confession, he reiterates that Jesus is the fullness of God. Specifically, now, right from the point of the new creation forward, he demonstrates that Jesus the Jesus we have seen, right? The word made flesh. This Jesus is the fullness of God. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All right, friends, this is subtle, but it's key. In the structure of this poem, right? For that's what this is. It's a poem, it's a hymn. Paul has moved from speaking of the original creation to Jesus' role and supremacy in his new creation. As we know, the story of the new creation began with the incarnation of God in Christ, when the Word was made flesh and came to dwell among us. Jesus' earthly life. So, when Paul proclaims the fullness of God was dwelling in Christ, he means here that if we really want to see who God is, if we really want to see the fullness, the nature, and the character of what God is like, we need to look no further than the life, the words, the actions, the love of Jesus as he lived upon this earth. And most importantly, we see this by looking at Jesus as he endured the cross. And this is actually going to be what we're really going to focus on next week. But now Paul brings the confession to a close Ah, with this. We see that Jesus is God's agent, right? He is the source in God's cosmic work of reconciling to himself all things. Verses 19 and 20, okay? Hold on. We read, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's what we just read, and through him and through Christ to reconcile to himself all 
things, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Okay, guys, we need to explore this just a bit. Now remember, all things means, say it with me, all things. The entirety of the created order, chiefly the apex of God's created order, humanity, this is what Paul means by all things. As Paul said in Romans 8, Christ is carrying out the will of God so that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So, what does Paul mean when he says that through Christ, God is reconciling to himself all things? You know, I could ask, if at the end of time as we know it, right, when the book of Revelation has been closed and eternity has been fully ushered in, if at that time all things have been reconciled to God, will there be anything or anyone who has not been reconciled to God? Guys, do you see the tension that this just may cause? And in case you think that I'm getting out on the weeds and seeing this on my own, I'll point out to you that any commentary you read on Colossians, conservative, the most conservative commentary you could find, is going to address this tension. And if you're still not picking up what I'm throwing down, then let's seek to be clear about what this passage, right? this is important, what this passage, verse 20, by itself does not mean, but also with great humility, what it does. So first, friends, this passage is not, right, capital N-O-T, is not a gateway to a theology of cheap universal salvation, right? This is the notion that it doesn't matter what you believe, that Jesus really doesn't matter, that all roads lead to God, and everyone, except maybe the really, really bad people, everyone will go to heaven when we die. You see, this statement here is God's word, that God in Christ is reconciling to himself all things. This is God's word, and it must be taken seriously. It also must be understood through the lens of all of God's word. Because if the New Testament is clear about anything, it is clear that Christ alone is humanity's hope to be reconciled to God. Christ alone is humanity's hope to be brought back into a restored relationship with God. Furthermore, the New Testament proclaims time and again that we receive this new creation relationship with God, that we receive God's righteousness as our own through faith, through faith in Christ. Let me just cite two examples. Romans 1 verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by, say it with me, that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, John writes, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. For whoever has the Son has life, and who does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
I write you these things. I write these things to you who believe in the name of, in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. My friend, the gift of freedom and new life in Christ is received through the gift of faith in Christ. Now, that said, my friends, we behold here a mystery, a glorious tension, and it is this. Yes, God's righteousness is given through faith in Christ to all who believe, a gift to receive by faith, but this is also a gift that can be refused. And at the same time, my friends, when we do look through the lens of all of God's word, we will also see that our understanding of sin and redemption and judgment and eternal destiny is all contained within the eternally larger mystery that God in the fullness of Christ and the fullness of eternity will indeed reconcile to himself all things. And everything needed for this work of, re of reconciliation was accomplished by Christ at the cross. Now, if that shakes you up a little bit, my friends, let me say to you that this does not, this glorious mystery, which Paul is about to talk about in, in the coming verses, this does not reduce the necessity of Christ. Far from it. Rather, it shouts out, it proclaims with hope and joy the great miracle of the goodness, redemption, sovereignty, the fullness, and the supremacy of God in Christ in all things. Now, friends, let me close with just a few important takeaways, and I encourage you to think about these. Um, if you've downloaded my outline from, from our church website, I have some questions there that I encourage you to go and think about and consider um, across this week as into next week when we're actually going to revisit this passage through a lens I'm about to give you. But a few important takeaways. First, our friends, in Christ, we are set free from fear. God is sovereign. Christ is sovereign. My friends, the next time you think of some geopolitical event or cultural trend or whatever it may be that just terrifies you, or maybe you're tempted to think that there is no hope for this world, and maybe you find yourself looking at life with fear and anger instead of love and hope, come and read this passage. Look to Jesus. Another in Christ, we need no other source for life and godliness. You know, we're so easily tempted to compromise who we are in Christ in order to try and meet our needs. And my friends, this very day, the time in which we live as the church, we are being tempted to compromise the nature of Christ in us in order to protect our rights, in order to protect our morality, Right, things that we see to be important and godly and good. But this passage calls us to remember that Jesus will never lead us to violate his nature in order to accomplish his purposes. My friends, Christ is sufficient. He is our hope. 
His character is to be our character. His love for us is the way of our love for others, for this world around us. And the fruit of his spirit is the expression of our soul. His way is always to be our way. One more, two more. Now, friends, before Christ, and when I say before Christ, I mean when we behold, when we consider who Jesus is, our response will be humility, gratitude, hope, and worship. And my friends, Christ will lead us to engage the world around us from the same posture of humility, gratitude, hope, and worship of him. And finally, the last one, my friends, this is of the utmost importance. The answer to the question, just who is Jesus, is also the answer to the question, just who is God? And we will explore that essential concept next week. Friends, I love you. Thank you for staying here with me today. Have a wonderful week. God bless. Thank you.